1: Hello everybody and welcome to the New Books in Folklore podcast. My name is Rachel Hopkin and I'm one of the co-hosts of the channel. And today I'm here with my brother who is a professor of European social history at Hartford College, Oxford. His name is David Hopkin. Hello, David. Hello, Rachel. Thank you very much for joining us. And the fact that you're here is not mere nepotism on my part, or nepotism in any way, shape or form, because although you're a historian, I've heard you described as a folklorist by vocation. What do you think the person describing you that way meant when he said that?
0: I probably came into history via folklore, actually. Uh, I wasn't an academic I went along to an event at the Folklore Society. I thought, oh, this is really interesting. I got my membership card to the Folklore Society and started reading books in their library. This is in London. Uh, And from that arose my proposal, which led to my doctorate at Cambridge.
1: So the book that we're looking at today is called Voices of the People in 19th Century France. Can you tell us a little bit about this book? How did it come about? So this is...
0: Uh, a kind of follow-up to my doctoral research, which was particularly about soldiers and soldiering, and I was trying to find a mechanism, a way of finding out how people thought about soldiers, and that led me to looking at songs and folktales and that kind of thing, places where people talked about uh, soldiers in the 19th century or even before. And as I became use this material i became aware that there's a kind of vast body of folkloric sources uh, across you know every region of france uh, and this is really underused i would say by historians uh, and historians are constantly bemoaning the fact that we don't have sources for ordinary people, that we cannot hear their voices. This is a complaint which you hear all the time. And uh, his, historians are anxious trying to work out how did people feel about poverty, about migration, about how a whole range of issues. But they say, we, we don't have any records. We don't have any sources from them. And that, you know, there's a point there. But actually, within folklore, it turns out we have heaps of voices from hundreds and thousands of different people And yes, they're they're in a particular genre. They're they're, they're in the form of tales or riddles or or songs or ballads or something like that. But nonetheless, these are the voices of so-and-so a particular person at a particular time and it turns out that they're quite often talking about the kind of issues that historians are interested in you know where how do people form relationships how do they feel about their bosses how do they feel about having to move what's their sense of identity in their region or 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 wider so in lots of ways this material is really rich for uh, answering all kinds of questions which historians want to know the answers to
1: What kind of material are we talking about? How come there's these huge collections of folkloric material? Well,
0: I mean, France compared with somewhere like Finland or Estonia is probably not that rich in in folkloric material. But there was in Second Empire, which is from 1852 to 1870, and then even more uh, in the early Third Republic, which is uh, from 1871 onwards, there's a real... Enterprise. Uh, there's an, a number of journals and a number of societies which are encouraging people to engage in folkloric research and to explore their regions uh, and their localities. And a lot of this is published. You know, there's a a lot of the material is uh, available uh, to to you know actually these days on um, internet archive a lot of it, uh, but. A lot of it's also in manuscripts, sometimes in departmental archives, sometimes in private archives. Uh, and that in particular is not particularly well known, the archival material.
1: On the first page of the book, I think you, you, you say that you're proselytizing for a folkloric turn in the discipline of history. What does that folkloric turn actually consist of?
0: Well, it's partly taking seriously this, the, this kind of material as sources. It's partly also trying to Uh, encourage historians to take seriously the methodologies which folklorists have developed. Uh, and that folklorists are actually really quite good, at a whole range of things uh, which historians would like to be good at in terms of dealing with oral traditions, oral culture in general. And it doesn't make any sense for historians, uh, and there are examples of this, of historians kind of reinventing the wheel and rediscovering things like, for example, that narratives move. And therefore, you you can trace their movement in time and space. Uh, And it doesn't make any sense for historians to kind of rediscover that when we've got the folklorists already there with the the tools which we need.
1: How do historians typically try and find out about how the common man thought? Because I think one of the things that folklorists often think about the d- discipline of history is that it tends to focus on elites in some way, because those are the records that are in the archive and much drawn upon by historians. Yeah,
0: so you know, elites are overrepresented in any archival uh, material which you're going to get access to, where you find common people is very often in court records. So, social historians have mined court records extensively, but there are other things like you know uh, applications for welfare. So, for instance, under poor law regulations in England, uh, people have to make a kind of case for themselves about why they should have what they want. Uh, and so, there are a range of uh, sources which do give you access to uh the concerns the uh uh, the opinions of the masses and even uh illiterate social groups but there is a problem there which is that very often you catch these people in the moment in which they're interacting with power Uh, and you know as i think we could all recognize in our daily life we don't always behave With power holders in exactly the same way as we would behave with other people within the family within our wider community. So there's a kind of particular issue there, which is that, you know, being in court does not necessarily encourage people to be themselves, for example. Uh, and then the court transcribes everything in a very particular way. It has a very kind of set notion of how evidence should be set down. And so the whole thing is pulling the material away from where we might want to uh, might want to be. The other thing is that court records very often come up you know, at moments of crisis. So, you know, if someone's involved in a rebellion or a riot or something like that, uh, and they're brought before the court, uh, and... So the historian is drawn to the moments of crisis, the moments of tension, uh, the moments of conflict, and they, and in a sense, you know, that's that's a kind of that is a disciplinary uh, outlook of historians. You know, that time has changed, and therefore you're always looking for how things change, and these moments of conflict are, are ways of exploring that. But what it does mean is that we undervalue the everyday. Uh, and the moments where things don't end up as crisis, and we don't necessarily see the mechanisms by which people can resolve their problems, without having resort to uh, instruments of the state. And so, the, folklore is really a kind of very good way into into the domestic, into the familial, into the everyday, and in that way, it kind of it gives you a very different feel for how people navigated their lives in the past, that it wasn't, you know, one continual movement from crisis to crisis. But, you know, there are ways of getting on with other people, of sorting out problems.
1: So in this book, Voices of the People in 19th Century France, you have a series of case studies through which you explore this folkloric turn that the historians could take and that you have taken. Can you tell us a little bit about how you came across these examples? Well, they, they're very much driven by where there are
0: rich sources. So the first two chapters are about a, uh, a village called Saint-Car, which is a fishing village uh, not far from Saint-Malo on the north coast of Brittany. And it happened to be that a French folklorist called Paul Sebio, uh, who was really prolific... A collector and uh, promoter of folklore in the 19th century he didn't live far away and he went there to do uh, he actually went there on holiday and to do some painting and he started engaging with the local people and he recorded well over 500 narratives from about 60 named people in that village and because it's a maritime village because these people are engaged in deep sea fishing uh, we can also find out a lot about them because the French state is very interested in their maritime population. Because if you if you if you go to sea for any period of time, you have to also be available for conscription into the French navy. So they have an absolutely very very clear record of where every man, at least in this village, was for almost all their life from around the age eleven to their death. And so there's a. If you, you can match up the material from Paul Sebio and his recordings of various people and you can see these people almost in real time as they engage with other people in the community, as they move from one boat to another, or they take on one engagement after another, or if they're you know, unemployed for a period of time. And all of this is extremely visible. I mean, they, this, the state records, the Inscription Maritime, it's called, it you know, records things like whether people have incurred debts, it, inc- it records things like whether they've been uh, any criminal convictions. And so, for example, Paul Sebio, when he stayed in this village, stayed with a family called the Pirones. Um And there's, uh, in one of the stories told by one of the Pirons sons, uh, it refers to a ship owner by name. And because I can see exactly what's happening in his life at exactly that time, I can also see that's because he's actually looking at that very moment to, to get a new engagement with this particular ship owner.
1: So... Uh- Are you seeing the facts of of these people's lives that you see from these official maritime records? Are you seeing facts of these lives reflected in the stories that Paul Sebio was collecting?
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, most of the people that he spoke to, not all of them by any manner of means, but a lot of the people he spoke to were fishermen. Uh, Most of of those fishermen were engaged in deep sea fishing. They went to the grand banks of Newfoundland. Uh, and they were fishing for cod for six to eight months of the year there and the aspects of their lives are reflected exactly in the material which these people then share with sebio when they're back on shore things like you know the um, so uh, there's a one of the his most um, informative uh, interlocutors whatever the... You know, interlocutors. The, it's a difficult in, word in, to in, say. In, in, yes. <laughs> One of his most uh, informative correspondents, actually, he wrote to him, was a, a guy called Francois Marquet. Uh, and when he first met him, I think Francois was about 13 and just about to go, you know, take his first engagement uh, at sea. And it's very clear that Francois didn't like this idea at all. He did not want to go to sea. His stories are full of the kinds of you know, the mistreatment which cabin boys on these deep sea vessels were victims of. I mean, you know, the life for cabin boys on these ships was well, I mean, it was hard at the best of times, but vicious and abusive at the worst of times, and there were forms of kind of you know, hazing and of uh, um punishments i suppose which were inflicted on the cabin boy as a way of the officers maintaining their authority over the crew without confronting the crew so the cabin boy is a scapegoat and this comes across very strongly in francois's stories even when he has a happy story about going to sea. The end story is he came back to land and he never went to sea again. Uh, and that's what he you know he clearly wants. And as it happens, through his connection with Paul Sebio, it works out for him. Instead of getting a job like almost all of his contemporaries do, uh, going to sea... He gets a job with the Pontichurcy, which is the engineering corps responsible for kind of maintaining the infrastructure in France. And that's down to Paul Sebio. Paul Sebio worked uh, in the ministry, which was responsible for the Pontichurcy, and that's how he got this job.
1: Just before we go on, can you tell us some of the things that the cabin boys would be subjected to, some of the things that these hazing rituals might have consisted of?
0: Well, I mean, the, the ones which uh, uh, come up in the stories uh, are to do being, being thrown overboard in a barrel or being hit with a fish. You know, the, the hit with a cod is, I mean, a cod is a big, big fish. <laughs> if you're hit with a cod, you'll know about it. So there's a, there's a range of things like that. I mean, I mean, memoir literature from the 20th century by people who've been through this experience or you know refer to it uh, as really quite terrible. Uh, actually, you know, if you look at the records of the inscription maritime, is quite often so hard, it's fatal for a lot of these people.
1: It's terrible. One of the things I think you look at is the relationship between Sebio and his interlocutors, which is something that folklorists are very interested in. Can you tell me how you see that playing out?
0: Yeah, it's, I mean, Sebio's quite an interesting character. He's a hardcore Republican in Brittany when Brittany is not politically, uh, certainly the elites are not generally Republican. And he's advancing uh, a Republican political idea in which the people, the masses, have to you know, play their part. You know, uh, They're the point of uh, the, the concept of the Republic. And so he has a kind of commitment to the people, which is there in uh, the material which he's collecting. He's interested in them. He's interested in in their psychology. Um, He talks about the notion of a kind of folk psychology. He's interested in their heroes. He's interested in their history in particular. So he's interested in their relationship to the British, which is quite Tense uh, historically, Bretons and the British don't necessarily get along because of this long history of maritime conflict. Uh, He's interested in their relationship to their former seigneurs. So before the French Revolution, all of these areas had lords who uh, had a role, and yeah, he quite likes the stories in which the, the fishermen reflect. Uh, on how much they despise the seigneurs of the past. Uh, So he's interested in these kinds of things. He's also interested in religion. Brittany has a reputation as a particularly devout region, and fishermen within that have a reputation as particularly, uh, maybe not devout, but concerned with maintenance of rituals and things like that. So he's interested in that kind of aspect of popular religion. Although, again, he, he quite likes the anti-clerical, the uh, subversive, um, the occasions on which fishermen kind of don't conform to this kind of superstitious idea of, of the maritime population.
1: The second chapter is called The Sailor's Tale, Storytelling on Board the North Atlantic Fishing Fleet. What information did you unearth there? So Sebio's not going
0: to see. He's getting all this stuff when the people come back to shore but there are groups of uh, men there's a family called the Massey family for example that he collects uh, there's three brothers and he collects about uh, 30 long narratives from that particular family so these are men who are you know, going to sea for long periods of time they're going to be shut in uh, uh, on board their ship on the Grand Banks for six to eight months a year. Um, I'm not, I should explain that the way they work is so you're on board ship but when you're laying your lines to, to go fishing you actually go out in a dory which is kind of it's like a, a canoe but you're on the open ocean. I mean it's a, a scary prospect there's only two men in a dory you go out and you lay your lines uh, and then later on you go back and collect them and you're taking up the fish and because you're in the far north in the summer you know, it's long days you're working all the time the food isn't great there's tensions all of the men are dependent on the quality of the catch for for their earnings they're not paid a wage, they're paid according to how much they catch quite often at an individual level Um, so there's a lot of potential for real tensions within the crew Um, crews are not recruited from within one village, they're recruited from across a number of villages or even whole regions so there'll be Normans and Bretons on board the same ship, they don't always get on there will be people from the maritime regions but also people from further inland and there's tensions there so there's a whole range of potentials for conflict and it seems like storytelling is a way of overcoming some of those conflicts i'll give you some specific examples so you can talk about things in stories which you couldn't confront officers with directly if officers are confronted with a crew which are dissatisfied about something that has the potential to blow up into a mutiny to to become really problematic and so they will come down hard on anyone who's expressing any kind of dissatisfaction but that doesn't mean that there aren't dissatisfactions there have to be mechanisms by which people can find out about those dissatisfactions so one way uh, is through storytelling People talk about what they think is a, an ideal officer. What what is your dream officer? What how would the dream officer behave? Well, the dream officer, would, of course, would ensure that all the men would have butter. They would ensure all the men would have coffee. He would put the men before himself and stuff like that. So a lot of these folk tales. I mean, they they're kind of standard. Folk tales from, you know, the Eurasian catalogue of folk tales. But they're often set within environments in which people are going to see. And so there are captains and men and you can talk about these kinds of things. And we know from officers' memoirs that officers did listen in to these storytelling occasions more or less explicitly to pick up these kinds of hints of what's going on where the tensions are what the problems are what they need to kind of address and so the storytelling becomes a kind of clear mechanism for resolving those kind of issues but it's also i think more generally for people joining a crew it's a way of learning what's expected of a sailor. Hey, how is a sailor supposed to behave? What attributes are admired? And by hearing the stories, you gain that. By telling the stories, of course, you then actually recognize as an equal and a member of the crew. And there's you know direct accounts of that within memoir literature of, of sailors, if you like, kind of buying their way into the crew by establishing themselves as effective storytellers. So what are some of the qualities that the sailors needed? Well, I mean, in some ways they seem somewhat counterintuitive. So the sailor's favourite hero uh, is a guy called Tribour Amour. Tribour Amour means that you never give way. So a sailor, for example, if he makes uh, an arrangement with a captain and... Every contract, I should just say, between these sailors and the captain who's responsible for crewing the ship are individual. They're not standard. So when the sailor makes a contract, he sticks to it regardless. So there's one story in which a, a sailor is engaged for a year and a day. And at the end of the year and the day, he says, right, that's it. My contract's over. I'm finished. Uh, and the captain says, but we're miles from the port. What are you going to do? He says, right, I'm going to take the dory and I'm going to go. Now, This is not necessarily a terribly sensible thing to do if you were on the Grand Banks of Newfoundland. But as a kind of expression of an attitude of how you have to kind of defend your own interests in your negotiations with captains and with ship owners, it it, it does really kind of express that.
1: Right, that's fascinating. So from the Breton Maritime community, where do we go next?
0: We go to Lorraine, which is in eastern France, and it's a region where in the 19th century... Uh, Villagers played a particular verbal game called the dayage. And the dayage is an exchange of of, short verbal rhymes, uh, which are called daimon. And these daimon, I've called them riddles. They're not properly riddles, but they're a bit like riddles because this is a wit combat game. And it's played between groups of men, usually young men, and then groups of women. And the men are out in the street, and the women are inside the house and so they're semi-anonymous to each other these two groups they don't necessarily know precisely who is speaking and that's part of the fun of what's going on daimon have a very particular form and they're kind of like a uh, a joke sale so uh, i would say i sell you the daisy which is uh, green at the root uh, and red all around tell me my love who loves you the daisy in france as in england you know you it's a way of you know he loves me he loves me not kind of idea so the 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 thing which you're selling is somehow also relevant to the question which you ask but you don't answer the question directly you propose a counter sale and the counter sale might encourage you to come in so um i sell you my little knife which cuts cake so well if you were my lover we would eat it together uh, or it might be a, a dismissal saying <laughs> so go away and this is a game which is for some reason, although it has medieval antecedents and you know, there are, there are medieval records of people playing this game, as something which has actually been observed, uh, as only happens in these this region of Lorraine. It's quite interesting. So, a very large corpus of these daimons, and you know, they have a lot of interest because it takes you deep into the social life. Of these villages you can see that they're kind of directly related to courtship how how does a young man and a young woman form a relationship lorraine is you know fairly catholic it, it's a region in which forms behavior of interactions between men and women are going to be overseen by people within the village and there is a sense that Certainly between the landowning peasantry, relationships are made for them by their parents. Uh, that is, these are arrangements which are decided on by uh, the elder generation because they're all tied up with economic in- interests. So how do young people bring their own preferences into consideration? A man, how could he even approach a woman and find out what that woman thought about him? And this game is a mechanism for doing that. It's a way in which young men can talk to young women. Well, a chaperone. There's a chaperone. The, the, the young women are in the house. There's usually older women there. But it's also used sometimes for political purposes. So uh, if you... Because the people are, it's, it's played at night, the young men are out in the street, you can't see their faces. Um, they disguise their voices, I should have said that earlier. They, they have a kind of swazzle like a Mr. Punch uh, in the Punch and Judy. So they're disguising their voices. And so they can say things which otherwise could not be said, about is the priest having a relationship with his housekeeper? Is the deputy mayor up to the job? These kinds of things. And so they can take on political overtones uh, and be used in that kind of micro-politics of the village, which is really quite interesting. So at one level, it's a a game and it's a form of oral tradition which folklorists would recognise. On the other hand, it's a mechanism for making a community work. And it takes us into questions about you know the nature of couple formation which historians find really difficult to access so if a historian is trying to work out why does so-and-so marry so-and-so what information have they got they've got they might have a notary record so when uh, the couple decide to get married there will be uh, an indication of which what property each is bringing into the relationship so you get a kind of very strong sense from that, that this is, yes, this is an economic affair and it's decided by the elder generation. But if you look at the game and you look at memoir literature about how people make their choices, you don't have any of that sense that <laughs> that uh, the parents are entirely responsible. So there's some other mechanism by which people are making their choices. And uh, their choices might fall within a fairly mar- narrow range, but they have some kind of autonomy over who they are likely to end up marrying.
1: Okay, I'm feeling a little bit confused, though, because the the, the, the women and the men don't know who each other... Who ah,
0: okay. <laughs> I should have explained. So, yes. So, you start off with an anonymous voice from the outside. And the anonymous voice, it might propose a sale, which implies a particular person. And he's trying to match it with someone inside the house. And trying to find out whether the girl likes the boy. And if it turns out she does, then they might be invited in. This is all part... There's there's kind of form, formulas used in the game which can say, right, you, you don't have to stay outside anymore, you can come inside.
1: But if if the... The man's voice is, is disguised. How does the woman, in, how does the girl who's being proposed to in the house or being invited to take part in this verbal uh, duel, how does she know who he is?
0: How she might not know who's actually speaking, but the person can refer to particular people or he can refer to particular occupations which would identify. Uh, the, so if I'm selling you a forge, for example, I'm talking about the blacksmith. Mm-hmm. If I'm selling you the vine, I'm talking about someone who uh, owns a vineyard.
1: So the person who's who's riddling from the outside, the man, is not necessarily speaking on his own part. He's speaking on the on the part of for somebody else. Yeah,
0: he could be. Yeah.
1: And so, for example, if somebody were trying to do this with me, they might want to sell me sell me a pair of tango shoes because they know I dance tango. That's exactly. Okay, got it. Okay.
0: Or they may even refer, refer to gifts which have already been passed. So <laughs> I, I I sell you this pair of scissors, that kind of thing. So okay, well we know who we're talking about here. I mean, this is quite important, I suppose, because. These are small villages. They're they're what's called uh, endogamous. So most people will marry within the village or a very kind of short range outside the village. And if you're going to marry within that community you want to kind of work out who who's interested in you and who's not interested in you but in a way which is not going to come back to you uh, and damage your reputation so if you're a young man and you go directly up to a young woman and say shall we go to the dances together and she rejects you this would all happen in public because you know the village is arranged in such a way that everything almost all interactions happen in public then Both of you are potentially damaged by that. So the game is a way of talking about these things without talking about them. And this is very commonly the case in these kind of folkloric genres. It's a bit like the sea captains listening into the tales. You can say things without saying them because after all, it's just a tale. And this is just a game. You know, you've said something, you've made a proposition, it's been rejected, but it was just in the game. So no harm has been done. And you know, that's a way of the of ascertaining feelings, uh, and you know not just the feelings of the woman, but maybe also the mothers who might be present in the room at the time. Say, actually, it's not just the girl who approves, but there's also a kind of more general level of approval within the whole community. And you know, at some level, the whole community is interested in this because you know a lot of land is held in common, so any new marriage. Actually, has a knock-on effect on everyone else in the in the entire village, so it's quite useful from that point of view.
1: So, can you give me an example of a courtship that you you see played out in the folk uh, in this in this duel that you then you transfer yeah. to a record? No,
0: I can't. I can't do that. And this is the real shame. Uh, I, there's nothing like the Anscription maritime here, um, uh, n- or none of the folklorists who recorded this stuff tell you who said what so you can't follow through to particular marriages and that's why i'm using this kind of regionalist novels and short stories because in the way they are giving the indication that this will end up uh, this is the outcome which is intended and uh, i mean i think this is true of wit combat in general in this is implicit, I suppose, in the fact that this is a a game which is based around sales, that you should be able to match sale for sale uh, the person that you're talking to. So I'm a rich boy from a rich house. I sell you the silver candelabra. Well, the poor girl can't match that. She doesn't have the silver candelabra. I mean, these things only exist within the game. But nonetheless, there's a kind of sense that you have to kind of match people economically if this is going to be successful. But also... Intellectually, If you can't play, then this whole thing falls to pieces. <laughs>
1: okay, so you're gaining a sense of your potential partner's kind of intellectual facility. Yeah, I think that's true. Okay, that's wonderful. So from the villages of Lorraine, we move to a particular family. Uh, can you tell us what you're focusing on next in the book?
0: Yes, so this is a family called the Briffol family. And they lived in a a village called montigny aux Amoins, which is near Nevers, in the centre of France. They are related quite distantly to a poet called Achille Millien. But Achille Millet, as well as being a poet, is also one of the most active folklorists of the 19th century. collects literally thousands of narratives across the whole region, thousands of songs as well. And the Bruffo family, she has this connection to through his mother, uh, who were yeah, you know, he, he uh, Ashil was born illegitimate. His mother was a servant in his father's house, his father was a notary. So she's really from a kind of much more working class peasant stock. Uh, and she has this relationship to the Briffo family. And the Bruffo family are an they have the family itself is quite interesting because it is formed by two brothers marrying two sisters and they live together in a single household and this is something which is quite particular to this region of France Uh, and it's uh, it's called a community type household or fresh we would call it yeah Um, and this is yes it's rare it's rare to have a single household which is made up of multiple nuclear families in this way uh and so the family then is quite interesting because you've got you've got not actually the parents the two brothers who marry the two sisters but it's the generation below the cousins who are the ones telling the stories and you can use this to kind of look at the dynamics of the relationship within that family and it's you know there are lots of ways in which it's the dynamics are going to be very particular because you are living with your cousins and with your uncles and aunts and that comes across in these narratives
1: Am I right in understanding that in this chapter you're looking at particular oikotypes of narratives and how they differ in the way that they're told within this family from more traditional or typical patterns within the narratives? And you're looking at that those oikotypes, the choices made in those oikotypes. Yeah,
0: so so marriage is you know, uh, a common phenomenon. Lots of people do it, and lots of narratives are about couple formation. But in this region, the Nivene, Because you have these community-type families, it's rather particular. Now, is that reflected in the variants of common narratives which people tell? And the answer to that is yes, it is to a certain extent. And so there are very kind of particular versions of stories which are told within this family, which would differ from ones which were told by people in other parts of France, for example. So you can imagine within this kind of extended uh, family, that sibling or sibling-like relationships are going to matter in particular. Uh, there's There are tensions between siblings, you know, who is going to inherit, who is going to be in charge, because there is, you know, nominally one person is going to be in charge of this household. And... Uh, and, but there are also kind of positives to that relationship. You know that this is a group who eat together, work together, and that will carry. You know has a potential at least to carry on for more than one generation. So they tell a lot of stories about siblings, a kind of little brother, little sister type of story. But one of the interesting things about them is that in folk tales generally, if we think about, if we t- think about Snow White, for example. Snow White has problems with her stepmother. She then leaves that household. She goes and forms a new household. In the stories which the members of the Briffo family tell, you come back and you make your home again in your original household. So even where you leave, you come back. And that's part of this notion of, uh, you know, community as something which kind of carries on from one generation to the next generation. So an example of an ecotype which works within this family, but might not in any other, is a story called Francaire True-Hearted, which is about a girl who marries, her husband then leaves home, she's then slandered by someone to her husband, her husband sends back a letter. He's a soldier. He's gone off with the army, sends back a letter saying, right, kill her. But instead of that happening, she runs away in disguise. As a soldier, she joins the army. She serves her own husband. Uh, she makes a fortune. And at the end of this period, you know, she reveals herself to her husband. The, the bad guy is punished and everything you know, reverts to an ideal family type. Now, this is a version of ATU 8.3a, 8, 8, uh, The Innocent Slandered Maiden. Now, in The Innocent Slandered Maiden, very often the person who is doing the slandering is an uncle. The uncle is trying to force his niece to sleep with him, and she refuses, and this leads to uh, this fleeing from home. Now, in this household, the uncle is there in the room, So it just wouldn't really work to tell a story in which the uncle is the baddie. So she moves it off onto someone who is outside the household and doesn't have any kind of connection to the household. So in that way, you can see that Marie Brehipper, who told this particular story, is telling the story in a way which is different from you would find elsewhere because of the particular household type that she's living in. And there are other things like that. So there are versions... Particularly around sibling relationships, in which issues are resolved between siblings and they are able to establish a household together. Some of these are versions of tales which are very well known, uh, such as you know the girl in search of her brothers or little brother, little sister, which is in the Grimm's. But again, maybe it's worth thinking about, you know, even for the Grimm's, who's telling them these stories? Are they? from regions which have these particular household forms where brothers and sisters will end up living together in the same household. Uh, And that's, you know, something to, to think about.
1: And what are you finding that these particular variants tell you about the attitudes of the people in the household? Or what are you imagining that they're saying? Well, one of the things which
0: comes across particularly from Marie's Uh, tales is that she is extremely hostile to the idea of marrying and leaving her home if if it does occur in any of her tales it's always prelude to catastrophe the person she's married is the devil or something like that she wants and her stories will achieve an ideal ending in which she's living in the same house where she grew up where the heroine is living in the same house where she grew up. That is what she expects. It had happened to her mothers because it was the mothers who inherited the farm and the brothers who married them came and joined them. And so in a sense, she's looking at that as the norm. That's her experience. The stories and her experience combine to form her own expectation of what should happen. So that's one way in which you can see the narratives Really reflecting very specifically on the circumstances in which this this girl grew up.
1: So she's expressing that she wants this this family to stay as it is. She doesn't want anyone going anywhere. (laughs) Yeah, but
0: you know, she's also you know, this is you can imagine within this household, there's plenty of opportunity for various tensions to emerge, and you know, in general, within gender relations within a patriarchal society, there's plenty of opportunities for tensions to emerge. And Marie is also using the same narratives as a way of kind of expressing ideas about how relationships between men and women should ideally be organized of the four cousins who tell these stories marie is the only woman the other three are are all men and some of them are are, some of their stories are fairly kind of aggressively macho i should say i mean there's um Women are taken for granted. Uh, their opinions about, for example, you know, should a relationship be formed between the hero and the heroine, are never asked. Uh, it just happens. There are some in which, in a sense, the, the the hero goes and sleeps with the girl, and then effectively forces her to marry him. So there's a kind of real sense of patriarchal peasant culture. But then Marie has got stories in which men are constantly making wrong decisions. So she tells a story of Brigitte. Um, It's kind of based on the Irish saint Brigitte, in which Brigitte is uh, slandered by her stepsister. The stepsister says that she's given birth to a child illegitimately, when in fact, of course, it's the stepsister who's done this. The father sends her away. She goes off. Then the father's farms goes into a decline. He goes off. He comes to a fertile land, and he meets a child, and the child says, "Uh, I'm catching fish for the mother who did not make me but who fed me. And, of course, this is the child who's been sent away with Brigitte. So at that point, the father has to recognise that he has made a terrible mistake because he didn't listen to his daughter when she was explaining things to him. And this is a very common trope in Marie's stories, that if only men listened to women, then many things could be resolved. And it it even happens in the stories itself. There's a great one in which a, a woman is slandered, She has to run away from her husband, but then she disguises herself as a man and she goes off and joins the army where her husband is serving as a colonel and she serves her husband as his servant. So I mean, she's kind of, you know, she's acting out the female role, but within a a male disguise, but she's making money. She makes all this money. She decides to set up a hotel uh, and to the grand opening of this hotel, she invites her husband, the colonel, but also the person who uh, slandered her, various other people who uh, she's connected with. And she says to them, we've all got to tell a story. And they go around telling a story. She says, well, I'm going to tell a story. It's about a woman who was slandered and who went off into the army and disguised herself and who served her husband, the colonel, even in this disguise. She's still wearing male clothes at this point. So she's making the point that men listen to other men. But they don't necessarily listen to women. But if her husband had listened uh, to her all those years ago, they could have been living together happily all this time. And it's also making the point that within a, f- a family like the Briffo family, where you've got a lot of people living together, all kinds of issues going on, storytelling is quite a good way of expressing things without necessarily doing so in a way which is confrontational. So within the story, she keeps on saying, it's a tale, it's just a tale. But nonetheless, you're imparting a particular message.
1: I'm liking the sound of this, Marie. She sounds like an excellent creature. So from uh, there, we come to work, songs and peasant visions of the social order. Yeah, I mean,
0: this is a very kind of straightforward issue in some ways. You know, do peasants think of themselves as peasants? That might seem like an obvious question, but it's really difficult to work out the answer to that. Do peasants or people who work the land have a sense of social solidarity with other people based on the fact that they're engaged in a similar activity? And, you know, there are peasant revolts in the early modern period, which might indicate that people do have that kind of idea. There are various occasions where people kind of um, use... Peasant symbols, the clog, for example, as a way of kind of expressing a peasant identity. But it's really hard in the modern period to find any kind of clear-cut sense of whether people did have that sense of belonging to a social group until you come to songs, until and specifically work songs that people are singing while they're working in the fields. And there's a set of songs with a very similar theme. Actually, as it happens in almost all the language communities of France, are so in Breton, in uh, German-speaking Alsace, uh, but also in the French-speaking and the Occitan-speaking parts of France, in which a laboureur, a ploughman, is talking about his relationships to all the other social groups that he interacts with the bailiff, the lord, the people from the town, uh, the lawyers uh, who have mortgaged the land that he's working on, and things like that. So, within these songs, you find a very kind of clear expression of the fact that, yes, you know, there is an idea of the peasant as a peasant and a shared repertoire of ideas about their relationships to other
1: social groups, which you can
0: then see also being mobilised in political action.
1: Uh, that sounds wonderful. And so tell us what what's your final area of focus in this book? So the
0: final area is is in the Valais region of, I suppose, central South France. The Valais, what's now called the Department of the Haute Loire, is a upland region, mountainous, but it's associated particularly with... Lace making. Most of the women of the valet in the nineteenth century would know how to make lace, and a very large number of them would be making lace for export. And lace making produces its own kind of occupational culture. So these women, as they uh, they work together in groups, either indoors, there's usually in a, even in the hamlets in, in the mountains, they usually have a kind of collective workroom where they can go, or uh, in the summer, they're outside in the shade of a tree, they're bringing their lace pillows out, they're sitting together, they're talking together, they're telling stories together, they're singing together, and the songs in particular interested a guy who lived in this region, whose name is Victor Smith, uh, who travelled around the region collecting these songs. So it's this kind of song culture which I'm really interested in. And... The valet is very particular for a number of other region reasons. The valet is deeply Catholic. I think we could call it. It has one of the highest numbers of uh, female religious vocations. It's exporting nuns across the country and indeed across the world. Many of the most best known uh, religious female religious orders which still exist today like the sisters saint joseph have their origins in the valet so this is a re- this is a, a a world which is imbued with a particular feminine religious view and this is finding its expression in these songs so the young girls are growing up they're going to these workrooms, which are often under the supervision of what's called a bayat. She's not actually a nun, but she's a member of a kind of tertiary Franciscan order, who uh, uh, who is kind of in giving them religious instruction while they work. Then they might go for a little while into a nunnery for a couple of years, just to kind of uh, acquire kind of it's kind of like a. Peasant finishing school, where they're kind of learning various needle uh, trades, but also lace skills. And then, when they leave and they go back home and marry, they're still coming together and they're still singing the songs which they learnt within this, with from the bayat, from the nuns. And so you have this feminised idea of Catholicism. Uh, expressed by these women and continuing to shape their expectations. So their expectations of men, it has to be said, are fairly low. Marriage is not seen as a happy ending in most of the tales which they tell. And when they're singing songs about men, they are often about sexual violence or other violence. So it's kind of, at some levels, quite grim. But there is also a sense of women having power And particularly these poor women, these lacemakers, oddly, lace, although it's a luxury, is very associated with poverty. Because of their poverty and because of their status as women, they are actually closer to God. And this comes across very, very strongly in the stories which they tell and in the songs which they sing. And so it's a very kind of specific form of a, I mean, it's a Catholic worldview, but it's a very particular version of that. I think it's kind of an archetype, if you like, of the Catholic worldview. And the way into it is through the material which Victor Smith recorded from these groups of women as they were sitting working together. I and mean, you can see that in his manuscripts, you know, that sometimes there's groups of women singing a song together, then one of them will do her own kind of party piece song, then the other one will come in. You can see mothers and daughters singing together. So you can get a very strong sense of this. Uh, these groups of women as they worked on, uh, in community.
1: Well, that sounds absolutely fascinating. And because I'm your sister, I happen to know that your interest in lace makers continues. Is this because of um, information that you found out when writing this chapter? Yeah,
0: so um, I was following the, the collection of folk songs made by Victor Smith, which is very rich. But there are other folklorists working in, or other people who are interested in lacemakers oral culture not just in the valley but also in the nearby regions like puy-de-dome but also in normandy also in flanders and also in england at the same period and actually some of this material it turned out has commonalities so songs which are kind of based on uh, the idea of uh, divers and lazarus uh, the um, the good poor man and the bad rich man obviously This is a kind of, you know, this is part of a common Christian culture. It's not specific uh, just to lacemakers. But lacemakers have a range of songs about bad rich people and good poor people, sometimes good uh, poor women uh, versus bad rich men, but not always, which are similar, if not the same, in different parts of Europe and different language regions of Europe. So we're talking about an occupational culture which extends beyond the valet and which absorbs maybe domestic lace makers in a large part of the rest of of, of Europe. And I mean, that's really interesting because that's the kind of thing which historians find almost impossible otherwise to trace. I've said earlier that it's difficult to kind of find evidence of peasant solidarity of having a kind of common sense of themselves anywhere but even if you did find it you would assume it would only operate at a regional level the idea that there is a potential here for a kind of an occupational culture which is drawing in people from really quite dispersed and diverse regions of europe that's really unusual
1: and that's what you're actually finding.
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I don't want to exaggerate here. Uh, it's true that lace makers in a, uh, in many regions are associated with singing, and their songs show some overlap in themes and in some cases in repertoire. But that isn't the norm, I would say. You know, that you know, Flemish lace makers f- sing f- folk songs from Flanders. But even there, you do find kinds of emphasis. So they will very often sing songs about female saints. And they're the same female saints, which also matter down in the valet. St. Catherine is one of them. But also, bizarrely, St. Alexis. Now, St. Alexis is not necessarily a saint which lots of Catholics are familiar with. But if you were looking at the song repertoire from the valet, he's by far and away the most popular male saint uh, that you can find anywhere uh, in uh, the region. You know, massively, he's the most popular.
1: So, just for people who are not up on their saints, what what's his uh, distinguishing feature? Well, he's, he's,
0: he's one of these good poor people for such. So, he comes from a rich Roman family. Uh, he decides on his marriage day that actually he's going to give away all of his properties to the poor, leave his wife, leave his family, go off and live in another town as a beggar. Uh, And that's what he does. And at the end of a period of 20 years or so, uh, he receives a word from God that, in a sense, he should have got his father's permission to do this. And he returns to Rome, but he doesn't reveal who he is. And he lives, if you like, as a kind of uh, in-house beggar in his own parents' household, lives outside in the courtyard, abused by the servants of the house. And he can hear every night his mother wailing for a lost son and he can hear his wife wailing for a lost husband and uh he he never reveals himself but actually a letter descends from heaven on his death and says you know this was your husband this was your son now why is this guy so popular
1: yes why (laughs) Uh,
0: he's problematic from a catholic point of view because uh, marriage is a sacrament you can't just walk away from it right uh And he does, and it's never resolved. But one of the reasons is clearly about poverty, and how close to godliness poverty is, and only the poor, really, are close to God. One of the other themes is defying parental authority. Lacemakers are put to work at a very young age, so you'll be working 10 hours a day from the age of five or six, Relations with, between parents who are the ones who are obviously getting the benefit from this labour are quite tense and often are expressed in much more violent forms than this. So women are not necessarily very kind of pleased with their parents and particularly not pleased with their fathers. And it's also about, you know, so the although Alexis gets married, he walks away from that and he follows a religious vocation. And as I say this region is famous, well, the Valais region is famous for its religious vocation. And so, in a sense, it's kind of justifying that you can defy your father's authority, you can go and join the Sisters of St. Joseph or some other religious order, that's acceptable within our world view. St. Alexis, the song of St. Alexis is known in other parts of France, but he is particularly popular popular in the ballet. Now uh, when I came to Flanders, I couldn't find any songs of St. Alexis, I mean, that that would have been my dream. But as I was wandering uh, around uh, Mechelen, uh, which is in the center of Flanders, I did walk into the church of St. Alexis, which was the church of the Beguines of Mechelen. Beguines are like the beats of the valet. They're tertiary Franciscans. They're women who live a religious life without taking religious vows. So it's a very similar structure. And again, the story of St. Alexis seems to matter to them. And in the same way as the Bayat of the Valley are associated with lace making, so the Beguines of Flanders are associated with lacemaking. Oh. So there's a kind of, there are connections. Right. Then there are connections between Flanders and England. Lacemakers, when they're learning to make lace in, in Flanders, have tells or tellingen. So they put in a, a pin for every, every, every line of the song you also find these tales in england and sometimes not very often it has to be said but sometimes they are the same tale and so you're seeing a work culture which has probably come from the low countries into the english midlands in the late 16th century and has been maintained there in some form through three centuries
1: so you're working on the study now, am I right in thinking that? Have, have you got a publication date in sight?
0: No. This is still very much work in progress because it turns out to be so rich. In a way, it would be easier if, if there was less material. But when you look at you know, the Flemish folk song collections, a very large proportion of them are made amongst lacemakers. And lace, these lacemakers' songs from Flanders turn out to be a hugely valuable resource. which tell you so much about family relationships, about economic relationships, it's kind of really a big thing and so (laughs) I'm going to have to work at it a little while longer
1: Well for people who want to find out about that but haven't any patience they can turn to the final chapter of your Voices of the People in 19th Century France which has already been published and is, I ought to add, an award winning book. Uh, I feel I ought to say that as your sister. Um, Just give a little family... uh... puff. (laughs) Yes, exactly. But for now, David, I'm going to let you go and get on with uh, your research. So thank you so much for talking with us today. Thank you for having me.